1989, Kenneth Baker was Education Minister under Thatcher. It was Baker who introduced student top-up loans, the start of the dissolution of the student grant scheme. The new policy led to 20,000 students taken to the streets. Among them was Zita Holborn, a young art school student from South London. So um, we had the big demo, so coaches came from all over the UK. Um, I was partly carrying our student banner, and this was from the London College of Printing at the time. That was the art school I was at. And um, we were on Westminster Bridge, and we staged a sit-in. And then the police announced on a loud hailer that they were going to um, charge at us um, mounted on horses. And we had like, you know, whatever it was, 30 seconds to get off the bridge. They'd, they'd come back to us a few times and asked us to move. And then they said, right, this is what we're going to do to get off. So everyone ran in a panic. And the other person that was holding the other end of our banner just dropped it and ran for their life. Me thinking, I don't want us to lose our banner. <laughs> Tried to like grab it together, pull it together. And you know those banners, especially back in the day, they were huge, they were really heavy, the poles were really heavy, and it was windy and you were on the bridge and I couldn't pull it together. Um, and I could see the hooves getting closer and closer. And all of a sudden, this police policeman literally scooped me up. I can remember he grabbed me. I was, smaller, petite then, yeah. He literally grabbed me by the waist and plonked me down on the pavement and said, there, we didn't want that to happen, did we? You know, like inches away, when the hooves were inches away from me. So then they forced us onto South Bank. And unknown to us, on Waterloo Bridge, they'd done the same thing. So what they were trying to, they were doing is making us meet in the middle and um, you know, it was like almost a Hillsborough moment where we were going to get crushed um, and because we couldn't go forward any further, but the police weren't letting us go back because they put up barriers. So we were stuck in the middle and they were making more and more of us go on the bridge. And we were outside the GLC building when I felt like I can't breathe anymore. You know, I'm getting crushed and I, I'm also asthmatic. So it, 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 it was quite stressful. Um, and just at that moment when I thought, oh, gosh, you know, this is it, I'm really crushed. Um, the staff in the GLC opened the windows and they're actually very high. You know, where if you've imagined that now, yeah, the windows are quite high, so they're not at ground level. And they literally just clutched whatever bits of us they could get hold of. And I was lucky to be under a window and they, whatever they did, they grabbed my hair or a shoulder or a bit of clothing or hood and hauled us up and into the windows. And I can remember us just all running through the, <laughs> the GLC building and out the main door, because the main door is, you know, the other side. So there's all these people in the office doing their work. <laughs> there's all of us just running through in a panic. But I remember, like, because we'd been in, we've almost been in a bubble on this bridge and then on, on the South Bank, that actually it was chaos when we got outside. You know, there were police with batons beating people. The cars had come to a standstill. You know, students being brutalised and arrested, and it was quite horrendous. Welcome to Rebel Women, a podcast about history's troublemakers. I'm Esther Freeman. In this week's episode, we explore race and racism in the UK, the part women have played in fighting it, and the risk they have taken in doing so. 
Zita grew up in South London, the child of an interracial relationship. Dad was white and mum was black. Her father was a fashion and textile designer who later became involved in international development work. But when Zita talks about her childhood, it is her mother's passions and righteousness that leave you feeling a bit in awe. When I was around five, we moved to Norfolk and we were the only non-white family in, in the whole town that we lived in. I think apart from the Chinese takeaway, um, and they were just new then, they were just starting, you know, when they started to spread across the UK. And um, <clears throat> I faced racism in school. And so I told my mum what they were saying and she told me how to deal with that you know, and what to say back to them. And that shut them up after a week or so. But also our neighbours, who she had got on with, there was a general election and they suddenly put up Vote Conservative posters in the window and she marched up to their house and um, gave them a big lecture and the next thing those posters were down and I can remember part of what she was saying and saying, do you realise that you know the, the Tories want me to leave the country, yeah? And you're saying that you're <laughs> my friend and there you are say, tell, promoting the Tories and telling people to vote for them. So I remember these kind of little snippets of things. So I would say my consciousness was there. It wasn't only the neighbours her mother took to task. My parents were part of the boycott campaign. Let's pause here for a moment to put the boycott campaign in context. It was huge in Britain in the 80s, but its history is longer than that. It was set up in 1959 by the anti-apartheid movement, a British organisation formed to oppose policies that persecuted non-white South Africans. Hundreds of thousands of people who never attended a meeting or demonstration showed their opposition by refusing to buy goods from South Africa. This was a period of huge growth in supermarket chains, brands we now take for granted on our high streets like Sainsbury's and Tesco's. Campaigners targeted them, demanding they stop stocking South African products on their shelves. Smaller independent traders were targeted too, including by Zita's mum, as she was explaining. My parents were part of the boycott campaign, um, and so I had a consciousness and awareness of the fact that we'd never buy South African goods. That was sort of drilled into me if I was sent to the shop. Back in the day, you could send small children to the local shop. You know, it's safe to send them out. And the instruction was always, if it was something that there was a potential for it to be South African, and make sure you don't bring back any South African goods, you tell them at the shop you don't want South African. And my mum was always buying things um, and saying, like if she bought her fruit, she'd say, and don't give me South African goods. She would never say cape, she would was, she was say it like that, because she was quite annoyed that all of these grocery stores and stalls were actually stocking it. Despite her strong politics, her mother didn't particularly identify as an activist. For her, it was simply what a black woman needed to do to survive in Britain. I think my mum being um, a migrant to the UK from the Caribbean and coming at the, you know, the time of no dogs, no blacks, no Irish, um, and having to face that, that kind of racism that she faced and the legacies of enslavement and colonialism. So there was always going to be, uh, you know, an, a, um, a situation where you're going to have to stand up for your, your rights when you're in that situation. So I don't think that either of my parents define themselves as activists. I don't think they would ever have defined themselves in that way at all. 
I don't think even I did for like quite a number of years. I didn't actually, you know, pinpoint and think to myself, okay, what I'm doing and the campaigns I'm involved in is activism. It wasn't even a word in my vocabulary, really. Although not identifying with the turn activist, her mother made sure Zita was politically active. When I was 15, 16, I joined the Labour Party. Um, and my mum just said, you're joining the Labour Party because they have a youth section and you're old enough to join. So it wasn't even a, it wasn't a consideration by me. That is a good thing, you should do it. And then you can get active and involved in things. So there was things I was doing before that when it came to elections and volunteering and activities and stalls and things as well before that. After school, Zita studied art at the London College of Printing, where she became a student representative. There wasn't a huge amount of things that I, that I was involved in, actually, at that stage. Um, but one of the things I used to go to was the meetings of the staff. So they had a student representative to go along on, to those. And actually, that informed my understanding of the art school from a worker's perspective. Yeah, So that was quite... Uh, in some ways, the meetings were quite boring as a young student. But actually... I did take in a lot of the things they were talking about. So they would be talking about printing equipment, for example, um, you know, their hours and their pay and that kind of thing, um, and the facilities in the art school. So um, it informed um, some of my understanding and looking at, looking at that art school from a different perspective, from the perspective of workers. This formative lesson in class politics led to Zita getting involved in the trade union movement in East London, where she began her working life. She rose fast up the ranks and boasts a number of prestigious positions, including National Vice President of the Public and Commercial Services Union, Joint National Chair of the Artist Union England, a member of the TUC Race Relations Committee, the TUC's Women's Committee, and the General Federation of Trade Unions National Executive. While that would be enough to leave most people breathless, Zita did not stop there. In 2010, the Liberal Democrats formed a coalition with the Conservatives, ushering in a new decade of austerity. Zita knew the black community were likely to feel the sharp end of these cuts, so co-founded Barack, Black Activists Rising Against Cuts. UK as Black Activists Rising Against Cuts. Um, I co-founded Barrack with Lee Jasper in 2010 um, and this was in anticipation of the fact that we knew under what we thought was going to be a Tory government, it was a, um, obviously a condemn government it turned out to be, um, <coughs> there were going to be huge cuts which were going to have adverse disproportionate impacts on um, black workers, service users and communities and deprived communities. We use black in the broadest political sense. Um, so anybody who is from African, Asian diasporas and identify with the, the term black as what, what is often commonly referred to, but is a term I don't really like, although I'm part of an organisation that uses it as well as BAME. Um, and at the time the in, the, in, the, in that summer, I was thinking, OK, the cuts that they're proposing are going to be horrendous. Actually, I'd spent several years in my trade union role 
dealing with um, cuts even under the current Labour government at the time that had impacted on um, black workers and other equality groups. So I was thinking to myself that we need to do more than I could do within the confines of my union and relating just to members of my union because this was going to be broader and impact more widely. At the same time, Lee had put a call out to say he wants to document the impact of cuts. So I responded, said, yes, I'll help you do that. However, we need to do more than that. We need to campaign against it. And so we formed Barrack. And I came up with the acronym. The reason was that... Um, obviously Barack Obama, um, and we were drawing on his um, history as um, a community activist on the south side of Chicago, um, and we thought it would be something that everyone would remember as well, because obviously his name was on everybody's lips at that, at that time. That summer, they organised branches around the country, set up roundtable events and public meetings, formed a legal arm and a parliamentary arm, and involved high-profile bat figures such as Diane Abbott. Then in 2014, the immigration bill was introduced, triggering a new focus in their work. Um, because we knew that it was a really racist, divisive piece of legislation that sought to create an apartheid-like state in the UK. Um, and again... There were a handful of MPs that opposed that, um, you know, you could count on two hands the number of MPs that opposed that legislation and it went through and became law. But um, we organised some parliamentary events, um, worked with some laws to try and influence some changes, which we were successful on some things, um, and highlighted the issues around it. But at the time, the main... All, all mainstream political parties were pandering to the right wing um, and had all become anti-migrant, including Labour. Barrack were already aware of people who'd been living in the UK for decades, yet being detained and deported to the Caribbean. They formed BAME Lawyers for Justice to support individual cases coming through. But once the Immigration Act passed, they knew things were going to get worse, and they were right. So we'd seen various things coming through. Then we learned that there was a charter flight to Jamaica. And it wasn't that these flights were new, but the nature of this one and who they targeted was um, different. And it's not just to Jamaica, to Pakistan, um, to Nigeria and other countries. So it's all black and brown people, basically, yeah, that they target. So we learned that there was this charter flight through finding out about individual cases of people that had been detained and been told that they were going to put on this flight. They um, booked 50 people onto this flight to deport them. Um, and they included people who were what I would describe as low-hanging fruit, people who were complying with the system, who were signing on with the Home Office, who were known to the Home Office, going through appeals and so on. So you had people, for example, there was a woman who um, was just going through the final stages of naturalisation and, her, and she, her children were all British. Her husband was British and her grandchildren were British. Um, her husband died, so they said, well, you don't need to stay now, we can deport you. So that's an, one example yeah, of, of the type of people that were being booked onto this flight. The lawyers began their legal case and the activists launched a social media campaign. They targeted airlines and airports and mounted a demonstration outside the Jamaican High Commission. In 2016, Zita wrote an article for The Guardian called How Can 50 People Be Snatched and Deported? 
They succeeded in getting 15 people off the flight, but time had run out for the rest. The plane left the UK. Zeta continued fighting to raise awareness, but it would take until 2018 before the so-called Windrush scandal broke into the mainstream. When they said, oh, this story has broken out, you know, uh, in The Guardian, well, actually, I'd already written about that over a year before, but nobody was particularly interested in it. And it took quite a long time, you know, to campaign and raise awareness. Um, and also, because of the stigma attached to it, a lot of people didn't really want to speak out publicly about what happened to them. So, yeah, you know, they felt a sense of shame and embarrassment. Um, and I could tell you hundreds and hundreds of stories of people, if we haven't got time for that, who've been impacted. And it's still an ongoing campaign because where we are at the moment is around... There are people that were deported and had gone for 10 years or 20 years, you know, fighting to get back. Um, there's a family that are supporting at the moment who are trying to get compensation, but they had to fight as or actually teenage girls for about 10 years to get their dad back to the UK. He just went on holiday. So there are people that have been deported. There are also people who went on holiday or went to a funeral or something back home and then weren't allowed to come back to the UK. Um, and it's not just Windrush generation people. So because of the Windrush generation, of course, generations of family have come and joined them. So children or grandchildren may have come to the UK subsequently to their next of kin here, and they've been targeted as well. Hostile environment immigration policy stoked racial tensions in the community too. In 2011, Liverpool striker Luis Suarez racially abused Manchester United's Patrice Evra during a match. Suarez, who already had a reputation for biting the ears off his opponents, was banned for eight games and fined £40,000. Yet Liverpool fans wore T-shirts in support of Suarez in the aftermath of the controversy and Evera received death threats. Those supporting Evera were also targeted, including Zeta. Barak and some others, we um, uh, founded an organisation that was um, uh, like love football, hate racism. Yeah, it wasn't really an organisation. It was a bit of a campaign, but it was triggered by that incident. And... um, Liverpool football fans decided because he was a Liverpool player to target me. So it was a Twitter campaign, but there were like hundreds of tweets coming through, bombarding all through the night kind of thing. Um, So, and uh, we know that there were a lot of women activists that get targeted, not just, but if you're a black woman, you know, you've got that double attack on you. I think it's something that happens quite a lot of activists. And if you're... um, either in the public eye or you're leading a campaign, um, this can happen. Um, but also if you're campaigning against fascism, yeah, and um, against the right wing, sometimes they target you. So some things happened, and on this occasion they decided to target me. Um, and then people who had nothing to do with it were um, sending me death threats and things. Alongside her political and trade union work, Zita kept her passion for art alive. I mentioned earlier that I was part of a singing group and that was like in itself a, an act of self-care and resistance but we focus a lot on, you know, we sing at protests but we also um, sing songs of freedom and campaign on justice, um, for, for justice through, through song and through our singing. 
Um, I'm also um, a performance poet, but I've written a book which is called Striving for Equality, Freedom and Justice, which is um, a book that fuses the, the poetical with the political. Um, so it has some of my quotes and my artwork in it, but it's a book of poetry, but it, it's, um, it's also a book of history. So it documents historical struggles as well as current struggles and current themes around the things I've been talking about, what I do as an activist in terms of gender, in terms of race, justice, equality, freedom, rights, and so on, um, but through, through poetry. Yeah, so I tend to write poems about what's happening, you know, what, uh, what I'm seeing or what's happening to me or what's happening in the world. Um, and so um, I think that actually when we talk about what is activism, activism isn't just going out and campaigning or running a political campaign or being a trade unionist or being a community activist. A lot of activism can happen through the arts and actually it's quite important to do it that way because we reach audiences we would never ever reach otherwise and engage with people that we couldn't and sometimes people will connect far more because of the emotional connection with, with arts than they would with any political speech or an essay you wrote, for example. I'm also, um, I founded the Roots Cultural Identity um, Arts Collective and exhibition. And this exhibition is um, uh, supported and initiated by the, the um, Trade Union Congress Race Relations Committee, which I mentioned earlier I'm elected to. So when Stephen Lawrence um, uh, died, and there was um, the Stephen Lawrence inquiry, the TUC set up a Stephen Lawrence task group, and it came up with a series of recommendations. Um, and one of the recommendations was to use the Marble Hall at the TUC headquarters as a space to showcase the creative talents of young black people in recognition of Stephen wanting to be an architect. Um, and so that recommendation was made, but nothing ever happened with it for a while. So I decided, right, I'm going to be on this and got the support of the committee that I sit on um, to initiate an art exhibition, which initially was to be like a one-off art exhibition to coincide with the TUC Black Workers Conference um, to do a call out to young black artists um, in recognition, actually, that um, not only do they face barriers as young black artists um, because of um, institutional racism in the arts and culture sector, but also um, because they're facing the adverse disproportionate impact of austerity on grounds of race and on grounds of age. Um, so that's a, an additional barrier that they're facing. Um, so we did the exhibition and it was a real success. Um, and what we did is, as well as holding the exhibition during the conference, it went on for longer than that, we invited the, uh, the artists, it had my art in it as well as the, the young artists, um, we invited the artists to have stalls at the TUC Black Workers Conference so they could sell their products, so it's a way of them generating business um, and income but also to um, come on the platform at the conference where we talked about the exhibition and, and what it's about and why we're doing it. 
So that introduced people to trade unionism as well. And so a lot of them have joined my other union, Artists Union England, since. Um, and it connected them with trade unions uh, um, and workers' rights. Because artists actually um, are often precarious workers, self-employed. But what's happening with a lot of young black artists is that they're not even getting work in the first place. They're having to do a full-time day job, which means that they can't focus on their arts practice because they haven't got the time, but also they can't generate the income because a lot of the funding that came through local authorities or through um, you know government uh, initiatives, all that funding has been cut for the arts. Um, and so the exhibition was such a success that we've been running it ever since. It's been running for about seven years. And then after the first year or so, I realised this is like ridiculous that we're just having a one-off exhibition and that's it. So I started to seek opportunities to tour the exhibition um, and take it to other venues during the year. And that was um, largely supported by trade unions hosting it at their headquarters or at their conferences and so on. But it's also been to, for example, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and other venues as well, the Bernie Grant Arts Centre. At times it feels exhausting to listen to Zita's resume of achievements, her endless fight against racism and inequality. It's more than most achieve in a lifetime. So her feelings about the state of race relations are a little surprising. We've gone full circle. So in the last 10 years, we faced the most horrific racism um, that I could have possibly imagined. And it's almost back to, well, it's not almost, it definitely is back to the no blacks, no Irish, no dog signs. That takes us back to the question we asked in our last episode. What does success look like? I will leave you with Zita's thoughts on the issue. So I'd say that a success is just amplifying the voices yeah, of those that face discrimination that in itself is like an act of resistance and it means our, our voices and our stories and our perspective is out there. So being part of organisations like um, Founding Barrack, co-founding BAME Lawyers for Justice um, has amplified the voices who are on the direct receiving end of discrimination. So I think that in itself is important. Um, and trying to change the narrative in the media by ensuring our voices were there, yeah? or the people who are directly impacted, their voices are there. This is Rebel Women. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review. Better still, tell your friends about it. If you want to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. For further stories about East London women, visit our website, eastlondonwomen.org.uk. Rebel Women is part of the Women Activists of East London project, which has been developed by Share UK, a non-profit community group based in London. Special thanks to the William Morris Big Local for funding today's episode.